Hello and welcome to Office Hours on KUCI, where I interview professors from across the various fields at UC Irvine about their research. I'm Sibel Kaler, and today I'll be speaking with Dr. Chelsea Shields, a professor of history at UC Irvine, about her research on decolonization movements in the Dutch Caribbean. Thank you so much for being on the show. No, it's my pleasure. So could you tell me a little bit about your manuscript, Closer Ties, the Dutch Caribbean and the Aftermath of Empire? Sure. So the book looks at the histories of sexuality and decolonization in the Dutch Caribbean to, to rethink some of our core assumptions about how empire ended and how the end of empire is, you know, narrated. Um, so first, it, it argues that decolonization did actually not create this separation between metropole and colony, as is so often assumed, right? Like, the end of empire created independence. But to the contrary, in the Dutch Caribbean, this, this smattering of six islands, uh, some of which are, are quite familiar to many U.S. Americans, including Aruba and St. Martin, which are popular tourist destinations. Um, these islands are actually still part of the Netherlands in some capacity to this day. So the book argues that, in fact, ties between metropole and colony actually grew stronger after the global age of decolonization. But more importantly, it, it argues that if we want to understand that alternate ending of empire, we actually need to look to different sites. We need to look away from the battlefield. We need to look away from the realm of high diplomacy. And we need to look to uh, the bedroom, to the ways that people actually discussed sexual and reproductive politics, which became, uh, as I show, uh, really important sites for thinking through the costs and the benefits of retaining attachments to the, the Dutch metropole. And when you chose to study the colonization of the Dutch Caribbean, what made you choose to focus on it through the lens of sexual politics? Well, I'm, I'm trained as a historian of sexuality, so I suppose I'm, I try to find sexual politics everywhere, or I see them everywhere, but actually this, this was not the initial planned focus of the book. Um, I thought that I would write a popular history of decolonization uh, that would look at, you know, rethinking the history and the trajectory of decolonization from this site that has been marginal to our understandings, but is in fact I, I think quite creative. Uh, but when I went to those debates, I found that sex was actually talked about everywhere. So I started the project um, around 2012, which is the year that three Dutch Caribbean islands uh, legalized same-sex marriage. They were the very first in the Caribbean region to legalize same-sex marriage. Um, and a lot of of that decision had to do with the fact that those three islands were actually reintegrating into the Dutch state. So previously they'd been kind of self-governing and autonomous, but still within this Commonwealth state, so under the control of Dutch sovereignty, uh, but they had their own governments. And in, in 2010, they actually became part of the Netherlands, the same way that if you go to Amsterdam, you're in the Netherlands. Uh, now, if you go to the island of Bonaire, you're also in the Netherlands proper. So as a result of that, um, there was lots of changing of laws, et cetera, and same-sex marriage 
uh, was legalized in those Caribbean territories. This was something that many local activists, LGBTQ activists, really welcomed. Um, and so at the moment that I entered this project, it was clear to me that there were these really pitched debates about uh, how integration into the Netherlands, what it meant to be a Dutch citizen in the Caribbean, was kind of always intertwined with these questions of sexual rights and freedoms. And as I pulled that thread backward, I saw that this was true from the earliest days of, of imperial reform already in the 1940s. So that's the story that the book tells, this kind of long, long history. Very interesting. And a lot of our listeners might not be as familiar with the Dutch colonies as we are with the British and Spanish and French colonies. Could you give a brief overview of when the Dutch started colonizing the Caribbean and how that played out? Sure. Yeah, I think the Netherlands, it's, it's funny because they um, were one of the world's largest imperial powers. Some scholars actually call the Netherlands the first global hegemon. Uh, but today the country is really effectively propagandized as this small and liberal and ethical nation. Um, and Gloria Becker, for those who are looking for more reading, has written a, a book about just how false those perceptions are. Um, so at the height of, of Dutch imperialism in the 17th century, uh, this is when the Dutch begin to colonize parts of the Caribbean, which include the six islands that feature in my book that are still Dutch today, uh, but also parts of South America. So including parts of Brazil and the Caribbean coast of South America. Um, and this was an extremely consequential um, history because uh, Curaçao, for example, an island that, that uh, looms very large in my research, this island in the 1600s became an extremely important trade depot in the developing Atlantic world. This was a site where um, hundreds of thousands of enslaved individuals came to the Americas before being sold to, uh, to different places. Suriname, another Dutch colony um, on the Caribbean coast of South America, developed as a, a truly brutal plantation colony. I think it even merits mention in, in Voltaire's Candide, so some people might be familiar with that. Um, and in fact, when the Dutch are kicked out of Brazil, there's lots of squabbling among different imperial powers in the region at that time. Um, many historians allege that that's actually uh, at that moment that they take the method of plantation agriculture out of South America and into the Caribbean world. So it's an extremely, they play a huge role in the Caribbean. Um, and indeed, they have a large imperial presence from the, you know, Cape of Good Hope, the southern tip of uh, Africa, to the so-called Spice Islands in Southeast Asia. So it was a vast empire, and other pieces of that have gotten a bit more attention, like the Dutch role in Indonesia. But I think the, the importance of the Netherlands in the Caribbean and the longevity of their colonial project there merits um, more attention. In your work, you compare and contrast 1960s leftist movements in the Antilles with the new left in the United States and the revolution in Cuba at that time. What were some of the differences in ideology between them? That's a great question. 
So I think the first thing that is worth pointing out is that radical Antillian leftists, these were primarily uh, former university students and laborers in the 1960s, they, they actually felt a lot of affinity with these groups. And they really saw themselves as, as building towards a more equitable global future um, at this moment of tremendous transnational activism. So in the 1960s, a lot is going on. The third world is rising up. And, and so Dutch Antillians are really looking outward to see how can we participate in that movement. And in doing so, um, they're, they're learning a lot from Cuba. They're learning a lot from uh, the new left in Europe. They're learning a lot from black power in the United States. They're learning a lot from decolonization struggles in Algeria and Vietnam. Um, so they, they see themselves as allies, but there were some differences among them. So let's take Cuba as one example. Um, by 1966, I believe, Cuba had claimed to have abolished commercial sex work entirely. Um, now, that's not actually true. Uh, Fidel Castro said it was gone, but really the, the socialist revolution had, had just kind of forced it underground. And the belief was that the socialist revolution, by restoring economic equality to people, um, it would restore so-called proper forms of labor to men and women. And selling sex was thought to be the ultimate form of capitalist commodification. So that was not tolerated in Cuba at all. Um, now, Antillian Dutch actors followed these debates really closely, and they were quite interested in, in what was happening in Cuba with regards to commercial sex work, because on the island of Curaçao, this is the largest in the Dutch Antilles, um, there was a, a large state-run brothel that had been set up by the colonial government. And it's actually still there today. It's the largest open-air brothel in the world, and it has a really bizarre history, and I'm happy to talk more about that later. Um, so a, a lot of Antillian radicals agreed with Cubans that they really wanted to get rid of this, what they thought to be a peculiar colonial institution. But others felt that women should be able to do whatever they wanted with their bodies as long as they consented. And so they saw commercial sex um, as a healthy part of a truly liberated society. So there were a lot of debates about that point. But perhaps the key point of distinction um, from Cuba was the treatment of same-sex desiring men specifically. So some scholars of, of Cuba, like Lillian Guerra, have shown how Cuban revolutionaries um, did not see same-sex desire as being compatible with revolutionary masculinity. And in fact, um, as the Cuban revolution, you know, moved from the margins into the mainstream, they um, actually sent suspected homosexuals to collective labor camps. Now, in, uh, in various black power movements that spread throughout the Caribbean, that was not just in the United States, it kind of, as um, one scholar has said, black power kind of found its wings in the Caribbean. Um, within those movements, it was not uncommon to see that same kind of heterosexual uh, imaginary, that heterosexual vision of revolutionary manhood popularized as well. And we have to remember that um, you know, stereotypes of black sexual deviance or um, not conforming to 
proper gender roles. These were always the stereotypes that underwrote colonialism, slavery, and unfreedom in the Caribbean. So these, these movements, no matter how progressive they wanted to be, um, they were always trying to upend those stereotypes to make the case for why they could lead their countries to, to new and brighter futures. So that's an important caveat. Um, but in the Dutch Antilles, there was, there was a really different kind of discussion that took place. And there was actually tremendous consensus within leftists and radical periodicals that circulated in the 1960s. They circulated around the Dutch Caribbean. They circulated to the Netherlands and to other Caribbean islands, too, um, that same-sex desiring men were oppressed uh, for the very same reasons that colonialism and Catholicism, which was the dominant religion, uh, oppressed other people's sexualities and freedoms. And so they actually saw the liberation of same-sex desire as, as being a key part of establishing sexual freedom and by extension, anti-colonial uh, freedom and sovereignty in the Dutch islands. Um, and it's interesting too that, you know, there were definitely uh, celebrated images of revolutionary men's men, maybe akin to, to um, the iconic uh, Cuban revolutionaries. But there were also, there was a lot of poetry, there were articles written about how Antillian, Dutch Antillian revolutionary men needed to be different, that they needed to be respectful and caring and emotionally available. I mean, there were literally poems that were to, set to instruct men on how to be this new kind of revolutionary man. And so that was a really different, interesting discourse that developed in, in the Dutch Caribbean. How did these anti-colonial movements in the Dutch Caribbean emerge and change over the last century? Yes, this is an excellent question as well. Um, I mean, I think the, the first, the thing we really need to grapple with is, is what we mean by anti-colonialism. So the Antillean experience forces us to rethink what is anti-colonialism, because not all anti-colonial actors, unlike the ones I just discussed, uh, believed that independence and sovereignty would be the best way uh, to guarantee freedom. So in the Antilles, um, as in other parts of the Caribbean, Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands, the French Caribbean, the British Caribbean, these places that are still unevenly integrated into former colonial overlords, um, not everybody has equated freedom with sovereignty and with independence. And so in the 1940s in the Dutch Caribbean, um, visionary leaders did not want independence. They actually believed that the histories of the Netherlands and the Caribbean had been too linked for too long to let go of those ties. And instead they wanted to, to, to give citizenship and voting rights and democratic inclusion to residents of the Caribbean who had long been kind of cast out of, of these understandings of rightful political participation. And so that was kind of the first wave, I would say, of, of anti-colonial movements. Um, in the 1960s, of course, things change. The global moment changes. I mentioned already that there's this kind of global surge of decolonization movements that really shifted the focus to the achievement of independence. And, and that became the goal in some circles in the 1960s, but certainly not in all. And I would say that desire remains among some people today. Um, but in the 1970s and 80s, there was a lot of migration from the Caribbean to Europe. 
because the Caribbean is part of the Netherlands, these islands have the right of free movement to the Netherlands. Um, and so with, with kind of growing economic crisis in the Antillian Islands, a lot of people left to try to find jobs and educational opportunities. And this also kind of revitalized these ties between the Caribbean and Europe. And so I would say at that moment, anti-colonial activism shifted once again to be focused on how do we force the Netherlands to reckon with its colonial past, to recognize that the legacies of, of racism shape what it means to belong to this Commonwealth state today and who is considered a full citizen and who is not. And so instead of abandoning that polity, the, the focus really shifted to trying to carve out uh, spaces of equality and to really rethink what it means to be Dutch so that 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 is not just focused on Europe, but also on the long history of Caribbean contributions. Wow. You mentioned this before, but what are some of the ways that these other anti-colonial movements around the world influenced the Dutch Caribbean? There's a lot of, you know, reaching out. <laughs> I mean, the Dutch Antilles, they're, they're small islands, but they're extremely cosmopolitan places. So there's a large oil refinery on Curaçao, for example, and um, people who would become kind of nationalist leaders in their own countries, like in Guyana, uh, they actually end up working in Curaçao. So there's a lot of mobility in the Caribbean region, um, it, I think, in ways that, that we can continue to study and learn from. Um, there's a lot of attention to the major, more iconic struggles of decolonization, like Algeria and Vietnam, which I mentioned. Um, and also the, the Black Power movement in the United States in the 1960s. This became really important in the Dutch Antilles. Um, there were some actors who actually had gone to the United States and come back and they kind of bring with them uh, this, this vocabulary for discussing anti-Black racism and also Black empowerment that um, had not been available in the same way to Dutch Antillians. And so that was uh, followed with tremendous enthusiasm by the radical Antillian press in the 1960s. Could you talk more about some of the ways that uh, sexual politics intersected with these issues of decolonization? Sure. So th this is really the story of the book and trying to uh, illuminate the multiplicity of ways that sexual politics concretely impacted decolonization is my primary goal. So you'll have to cut me off at some point because I can talk <laughs> for a while about this. But um, I think very strikingly in the 1940s, right when imperial reform appears on the horizon, in this case, recall that imperial reform means expanding Dutch citizenship to the Caribbean, not that the Caribbean would become independent. At this moment, the very first task of the late Dutch colonial government was to try to encourage Afro-Curacaoan laborers to marry and to embrace what they viewed to be the kind of universal value of the Western nuclear household. And they did this, Dutch officials did this, because they believed that changing uh, relationships to family and marriage and child rearing would make Curacaoans deferent citizens, diligent laborers. And so the very idea of citizenship from the outset was totally bound up with racialized ideas of proper sexual behavior. 
Um, so that, that's kind of the first story that I document uh, in the book. But I also show how these, these divisions also played out across the islands themselves. So the Dutch Caribbean includes six islands that are actually, you know, some of them are close together, but others are truly miles apart from each other. They speak different languages. They have different religious traditions and different, you know, different histories in some respects. Um, and so in the 1950s, Aruban housewives come together by the thousands to protest the introduction of a brothel on Aruba. And they did this by, again, deploying this anti-Black language and the assumption that Afro-Curacaoan sex workers would travel en masse to Aruba, thereby threatening the, the alleged racial purity and, and the moral righteousness of their island. So these divisions also played out uh, between these islands. And at that moment, there, there was uh, a big movement to try to separate Aruba from the Dutch Caribbean. So the struggle was not between metropole and colony, but between the colonies themselves. So I try to look at how attention to sexual politics can open up all of these underexplored histories and decolonization, both you know, shifting the way we think about its trajectory, uh, but also where, where that drama played out. And what kind of ideas concerning sexual equality were these leftists in the 60s thinking and writing about? Oh, gosh, it was so, uh, so many different kinds of things. And this was actually probably one of my favorite archival finds. Um, there were a handful of really prominent Antillian leftist periodicals published over a span of 15 years from the, you know, mid-1960s right up until about 1980. Um, and they were published on Curacao, but also in the Netherlands among people in the Antillian diaspora. And um, I was just thrilled to discover sitting down in the archive that from the, the moment <laughs> of their very first publication, they're giving a lot of attention to sexual and reproductive politics. On the cover of one of the inaugural issues, the major leftist publication was this image depicting all forms of birth control and contraception. So they're talking about contraception, the availability of, of abortion and birth control, which had been strictly forbidden on this you know, deeply Catholic islands in the Southern Caribbean. They're talking about gender roles. They're talking about commercial sex work, um, but they're also talking about women's sexual pleasure. So, Radical women were involved in these discussions as well, and they write in passionate prose to their fellow uh, comrades to say, you know, we don't want to be a generation of sexual robots. That was a direct quote. And we need to demand that women's sexual pleasure is taken seriously. And they literally said that the struggle for decolonization, the struggle for independence would take place in the bedroom, and it would start with women demanding their right to sexual freedom. Wow, that's amazing. A lot of that is more progressive than things we see today. <laughs> I know. They're, they're visionary. And that's, that's why I'm, I have such joy in kind of restoring to view these perspectives. In your work, you mentioned how socialism was thought of as the solution for these sexual liberation issues. Could you explain how that was thought of? Sure. Um, so I think at its core leftists embraced socialism because uh, economic liberation was thought to bring true erotic freedom. 
So love would no longer be based on whether one partner could provide the other economic security. And once those shackles were removed, then you could really think about romance and compatibility uh, beyond economic considerations. Now, other uh, anti-colonial feminists pointed out that this was not ever really the reality in the Caribbean because the economy um, had really deteriorated uh, owing to the, the kind of colonial practice of developing just mono-economic practices. So all of the whole economy was focused on oil refining. And once that industry sort of fell apart um, it, in the early 1950s, uh, the economy just began to sink precipitously. So anti-colonial feminists who were especially active in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, which is this broader moment of so-called third world feminist um, uh, mobilization, that was a term that many feminists embraced to try to subvert its negative connotations and say there's really creative and very different kinds of feminism coming from the so-called third world. Uh, so Feminist mobilization on Curacao overlaps precisely with that movement, and they were in many ways in dialogue. They attend the same conferences. Um, but these feminists pointed out that, that they didn't really feel like their struggle was against men. So unlike femini the feminist movement developing among uh, many white middle-class feminists in the United States, they said that their, their struggle was alongside men against capitalism and against colonialism. So they wanted to work together with men. Many of the feminists on Curacao like painstakingly built these alliances with all male uh, labor unions so that they could try to achieve uh, independence and with that, uh, socialism. Um, so those were some of the ways that they felt sexual and gender liberation to be really tied to um, socialism. How do these issues of colonization still play out in the modern Caribbean? Well, I mean, right now we are seeing scenes that resemble in some profound ways precisely what we saw in the 1960s. So rising inequality um, demands for, in this moment of tremendous globality of Black Lives Matter, we are also seeing uh, in the Caribbean, in the Dutch Caribbean as well, uh, participation in these kinds of struggles. And this is overlapping, of course, with the conditions of the, the global pandemic. Um, so in, in this moment, uh, the Caribbean has been extraordinarily impacted because their tourist industry has shut down. This is the, the backbone of their economy. Um, and the Netherlands has continued to say, well, we aren't really going to pay for you to get out of this. We're going to put all these strings on any kind of aid we give you um, to, to intervene and to oversee uh, the government in the economy with the same kind of patronizing attitude that characterized colonialism. Meanwhile, of course, the Netherlands is providing millions of dollars of aid to Italy without any of those conditions. And so recently um, there have been uh, rebellions on Curacao again, as public workers wages have, have um, been set lower, they've gone down. This is kind of emergency conditions of the pandemic or so the government claims. And so there's a lot of renewed attention again to the way that the Caribbean is seen as totally secondary within the Commonwealth uh, Netherlands today and rebellion is still playing out to draw attention to those issues. 
why is it so important to consider these issues of class inequality, sexism, racism, homophobia, colonialism, and other forms of oppression as all intrinsically related? I think it's crucially important uh, to see those things as related. And I would say it's not, it's important not least because this is exactly what Antillians wanted us to see, where these activists have consistently laid out the case that um, the same, you know, the same systems, the same beliefs that oppress um, same-sex desiring men, for example, have also been used to condemn and police uh, formation of Black families, Black households. And so these activists really wanted to align those struggles such that there would not be uh, kind of unique movements of feminist movements that didn't take into account class or racism. They saw all of these things as combined. And uh, I think that's really the, the special legacy of, of the Dutch, of Dutch Caribbean activism in the Caribbean and, and worldwide. I completely agree. Do you think that um, the United States in some ways still acts as a colonizer today? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I guess that would be the short answer. Um, yes, and it's interesting because in the after the 1969 rebellion, which I document in my research, this was a moment where um, many working class and and um, yeah laborers, people living among you know kind of belonging to the urban poor in the city of Willemstad, the capital of Curacao. They rose up uh, to indict the corruption of the local government, but also to draw attention to persistent issues of anti-Black racism and racial inequality on their island, but also across the Kingdom of the Netherlands. So at that moment, there's tremendous uh, destruction of the downtown, millions of dollars of property damage, which, of course, that was the the issue that most concerned the Dutch government was the property damage. Meanwhile, actual living and working conditions of, of the people rebelling were not totally paid attention to. At that moment, the Dutch Marines were actually sent in to try to subdue this rebellion. And as a result, after that, the Dutch wanted to get rid of the Caribbean. They said, we don't, this was in the 1960s, they'd already gotten rid of Indonesia in a bloody, horrific war of decolonization wherein the Dutch lost. So they did not want to look like the evil colonial overlord anymore. In fact, one force that has compelled the Netherlands to hang on to these islands has been the United States, uh, because the islands, according to the United States, are kind of key in fighting the so-called U.S. war on drugs. Uh, so, the, so the U.S. Southern Command actually retains um, airspace uh, over Curacao and Aruba in order to police the perceived movement of drugs across these spaces. Um, so that's one real concrete example of how U.S. power actually extends to even to this part of the Caribbean. But in other indirect ways, um, you know, the the as we're seeing now, uh, horrifically laid bare, the reliance on the tourist economy uh, has been devastating. Um, one, because it reproduces the idea that Caribbean people, Caribbean bodies should be available solely to folks who can pay and, and go seeking their exotic vacation. Um, 
But on the other hand, because it produces a real economic reliance on this one industry that now lies in shambles. So um, U.S. tourists are, are the, um, the most likely to visit places like Aruba and St. Martin. And so those are some ways, albeit more indirectly, that the United States um, has a, a really significant sway over Caribbean economies. That's just about all the time we have, but thank you so much. This has been a really fascinating conversation. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. That was Dr. Chelsea Shields, a professor of history on decolonization in the Dutch Caribbean. I'm Sibel Kaler, and this has been Office Hours. If you'd like to find out more and listen to our past episodes, you can go online to bit.ly slash officehourskeci or find us on keci.org. If you're listening to this, I hope you have a great day, stay safe, and be kind to each other out there.